Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dan Hughes, who will discuss how to better understand dyadic developmental psychotherapy, or DDP. And now your host, Karen Doyle-Buckwalter. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Karen Buckwalter with the Attachment Theory in Action podcast, and I'm really excited to have with me today Dr. Daniel Hughes. Welcome. Well, thank you, Karen. It's good to be here talking with you. Yes. Um, So um, first, if you could share with our listeners just a little bit about your background, I think that would be helpful. Sure. Well, I'm I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, and uh, my first uh, position, I was a director of children's services, and uh, this was in 1975 or so, and I was asked to develop a child abuse treatment program because they were barely in existence back then. Uh, at that point, uh, mental health did not see trauma as that relevant uh, for mental health services. Uh, we're talking a long time ago, 1975, that's over 40 years ago. Uh, so in developing it, I realized that most of what we had as evidence-based practice at the time really was not effective with these kids with the more severe traumas the traumas that affect what we now call developmental trauma when you're abused within your own family, uh, inter, interpersonal, intrafamilial trauma. And so I, I started to look for ways to help these kids and the, the theory that guided me was attachment theory. And so then I developed interventions that were based on that theory and the research that goes along with that theory as a guide to finding more effective ways to to be of help to these kids. Great. And so tell us a little about that journey and how you put some very specific pieces together that form what is now called dyadic developmental psychotherapy. Well, as I say, the the theory was there. The question Mm -hmm. was how to uh, implement it. I, I didn't have too many guides in clinical practice at the time. Uh, so one guide I had was uh, raising my three kids, uh, knowing how they were forming a healthy attachment, what they needed to do so, and what I did that facilitated it. Uh, that was a guide. Also, I had theoretical writings of, uh, from attachment and intersubjectivity, which is a, a, another theory that closely into is interwoven with attachment and I use those as a guide uh, to uh, ways to relate with these kids uh, somewhat differently and uh, I quickly realized the the caregiver the foster parent the adoptive parent or in some cases the biological parent who has made some progress in in facilitating their ability uh, to keep their kids safe uh, would be present in the therapy. And then my job was to, to serve as a midwife for this process to help the kid form an attachment to their primary caregiver. 
because I realized they couldn't do it with me, or even if they could, it's not going to generalize to their primary caregiver. So it became a very family-focused, trauma-based, attachment-influenced uh, uh, method of therapy. Why did you choose the name dyadic developmental psychotherapy? Well, I wanted, at the time, there was some controversy about some attachment therapies that were starting at the time that were fairly intrusive, uh, invasive, I thought. And I wanted to make sure I separated myself from those therapies. And the dyad is the key part of attachment. The child, the, the infant's attachment to the mother or father and the parent's caregiving toward the infant. So the dyad is crucial for development. And so dyadic developmental psychotherapy, it wasn't supporting kids around hard times. It was helping them to, to be able to resolve, heal, resolve, integrate, and develop a new, a new way of living with good fam within a good family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when did your first book come out? In 97. Okay. And that was facilitating developmental attachment. Well, that was facilitating and it's very dated so i don't recommend it at all now that's 20 years old so i've changed so much the theory the theory the the research but also the therapy principles and interventions have changed so i'm actually just finishing a manuscript for a, a new book on dyadic development of psychotherapy that will replace that one i've had many books in the meantime but no comprehensive book on the therapy uh-huh and the parenting that goes with it. I've, I've, ad I've, I've addressed this from many perspectives, uh, from parenting, from all parenting, uh, which I call attachment-focused parenting, not for kids with developmental trauma, uh, nor biological roots of it. So I've had a number of books, but not any to replace the original 97 book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Well, so um, important what I hear you talking about with the caregiver and I think some of us who work from an attachment perspective take that for granted but I think there's still many out there you know working with a child alone with the parent in the waiting room or the parent dropping them off right. uh, so I'm, I'm so glad that that you're emphasizing that you mentioned at the beginning you know people weren't thinking as much about trauma and the impact on children when you were first starting all of this. Of course, now in the last five to 10 years, that's the big buzzword and trauma, 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 everything about trauma. And some real specific models are, are being pushed to work with that. Um, one I have in mind is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, lots of people contact me and say, you know, what do you think of that? Um, that's that's what our court is telling me I have to use, or that's what my agency is saying. So I kind of like your thoughts on that. Well, I'm concerned about it as a model for uh, child abuse, uh, kids with serious attachment problems. It's, it's, it's a model therapy that's developed for simple trauma, you know, being bitten by a dog or um, an accident of some sort. And it's a fairly effective for simple trauma, but in terms of developmental trauma, which is intrafamilial and a personal trauma, I, I, I'm not that confident that it will um, provide the foundation of safety, provide the developmental skills the kids need, um, because they, they need to start way, way younger 
than a cognitive approach to these situations. They need to go into real basic um, attuned interactions with parents using their um, uh, developing that, that rhythmic uh, way of connecting, communicating, being vulnerable, turning to others for comfort and support. And um, in general, like the, that, that model that you mentioned, brings the parents in after the trauma has been resolved. And that makes absolutely no sense to me. And when mm -hmm. I questioned it, I was told, well, many parents aren't able to help the child with the trauma because it triggers stuff in their own life. And I say, well, the great majority of times that happens, I meet with the parents alone once, twice, three times, and then they can do it. Uh, most parents can do it if you give them a bit of training and support so they understand how and why. And then having the parent present enables the trauma to be resolved so much more, more quickly. And while the trauma is being resolved, you're developing the attachment. They work mm -hmm. hand in hand beautifully. Mm -hmm. So I, I really would... Uh, uh, for developmental trauma, I would be concerned that it's it it doesn't uh, start where the child needs to start. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. I I see exactly what you're saying. Um. That is kind of a good segue. Some of what you mentioned into what was going to be my next question. How do you see um, the caregiver's own background or the parent's own background impacting this therapy? And how do you work with that? Well, it certainly is uh, the, the caregiver's background is important because the child's um, history and, and behavior, both the history, which can be hard to sort of uh, be emotionally strong in hearing the child's history and com comforting the child if they're talking about having been sexually abused, for example, that can be hard. Uh, well, if I have any unresolved issues in my own life as a parent, then that will activate those issues and if they're not resolved it'd be hard to to stay present with the child in doing that so um there's and, and there's so much research that if we want to facilitate attachment security in child in a child the best way to start is making sure the uh, the parents are securely attached and resolve themselves and regarding their own history so uh, i would first be doing an assessment of that and i could do that through a good clinical interview in terms of a person's own history. It doesn't mean they've never experienced hard times as a child, just that they've resolved them is what I'm looking for, so that they're able to stay present, emotionally strong and present with the child to help them. Well, if the parent has struggled with that, then uh, I would be recommending uh, they, they discuss that with me uh, to see if brief therapy, which it may well simply be four, six sessions, if they've unresolved hit aspects of their history is enough to resolve it so they can then be emotionally strong for their child. Sometimes it requires more than that if a person has a horrific history that hasn't been addressed at all and they're still struggling in their life, then, uh, then I, I would be recommending they have a longer course of therapy before starting the joint work. But that's mm -hmm. not necessary. And uh, often the work they do can be done at the same time. They're, providing the family work with their child. You mentioned earlier, you know, often seeing the parents two to three times before you start with the parent and child therapy. Would you say that's like your typical protocol, like meeting first with the parent for a period of time before starting or? 
Yes, I would always meet at least once. Okay. Both, both to get the history uh, and the current concerns uh, focusing on the child, and then some questions in, about the, the parent's history, the family history, the rest, the context in which the child is now living to see if this is part of, uh, is going to be part of the therapy and if the parents had the resources and commitment in order to do the work necessary to help their child. Uh, so that minimum would be one session, maybe two and maybe three. Uh, that's a majority of time, it's not more than that. Then I might see them with their child and then uh, to get an assessment of how I, I like to meet the child, get my, my view of him, explore s some of the, the history and the, the problems, as well as their strengths and, uh, and their relationships. Um, and then probably meet with the parents alone after I have developed my, my impressions of their child. And then I would give recommendations to the parents about the course of therapy as I envision it. And if they agree to that, then give them a sense of what, what it's going to entail, what the therapy is going to look like, as well as what the parenting at home is going to look like. Because mm -hmm. I have to recommend they have a model of parenting based on attachment principles that's congruent with the model of therapy. They can't be different. It has to be a very comp compatible uh, way of parenting at home. Right. And do you, is there a certain book that of yours that you recommend for the parents um, in conjunction with the work that you're doing in therapy or? Um, I'd be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might suggest attachment focused parenting. Mm -hmm. There's another book that I wrote with Kim Golding, a psychologist in England called Creating Loving Attachments. Uh, if the parent, if the child's behaviors are pretty severe, then I would recommend building the bonds of attachment, uh, which is uh, working with a foster parent and a therapist uh, using this model with the child with pretty severe symptoms. Uh, that's, that's been around for a long time, but I've just come out with the third edition to that book. So I'm very pleased with it. And it's been very popular and many parents have found it to be very helpful with parenting child, children with pretty significant problems. It's also an audio book now for parents that don't have time to read. That's so good. I, I love that book. I have recommended it over and over and over. I always tell people it reads like a novel, but you're still learning so much. And I think that book is just fantastic and so accessible. And yeah, um, make sure that you get the third edition. Yeah, I've been telling people the second edition. So now that I know this, because I, I, yeah. I know, you know, we evolve and we change. Yeah, and... Right, right. So the third is better than the second. Okay. All right. All right. Um, and something else that we haven't really touched on is um, the work that you've done with John Balin in terms of looking at the brain um, mm. and how that relates. And I want, I would like if you could speak to it, maybe even define the concept of blocked care, um, because I think that that is um, something I've been talking about a lot with, with therapists that I work with, helping them understand how parents who are very devoted in many ways can come across harsh and cold um, in these kind of relationships. And I just think that concept is so helpful. I wanted to see if you could talk about that just briefly. Sure, I'd be happy to. <clears throat> John and I wrote two books, The Brain-Based Parenting in 2012, and then in 2016, The Neurobiology of Attachment-Focused Therapy. 
And the second one, I'll, I'll focus on that one because it brings together block trust, which is a child who doesn't trust the parent with serious attachment problems, and block care. The two often are so close to because attachment is a relationship. It's not a personality trait, it's a relationship. And healthy babies uh, naturally form a secure attachment to parents who are good at caregiving, who are committed and capable of caring for their baby. And the two work hand in hand. So if you have a child ready to attach and, and they're in a situation with an at-risk parent who has trouble caregiving, the attachment starts to break down and becomes disorganized. Uh, and then this child starts to mistrust and then rely on themselves a lot. Then they get more controlling and manipulative and vo avoidant and dissociative and angry and all that stuff because they have to do it alone. That's their, their way of survival is to do it alone because they don't trust. Well, when you have that, because um, we're talking about a relationship here and we're also talking about how the brain is designed. The brain is designed for relationships, it, it certainly is. And, uh, and the relationships are designed for reciprocity. So if you have a relationship with somebody where you're involved, engaged, you enjoy them, there's pleasure in it, you're interested in them, there's a lot of meaning in your actions, and the other person doesn't see any meaning and doesn't enjoy it, is not interested and doesn't approach, doesn't want to be near, it, it makes it very hard to continue to do your side of the relationship. That's obvious with a partner, clearly if in your relationship with your partner, if the partner isn't responding, it's not reciprocal, you're not gonna be able to maintain that relationship with your partner. Well, it's the same is true in a parent-child relationship. Even though the parent is not turning to their child for emotional needs, it's a generational difference here. We don't turn to our child to keep us safe. Still, when we have a relationship with a child, when we're giving and giving and ready to care and able to care, and the child says, I don't like your caring, it neurologically starts shutting down four of the five systems of the brain that are crucial in caregiving. And when those four or five systems uh, start shutting down, uh, it's, you may still do your job, you're committed, you, you did it, you do your job, but your heart sort of leaves you develop a sense of apathy. The pain of social rejection, uh, rejection from your child is there and you protect yourself. Neurologically you do. It's not a choice you're making. It's not because you're not trying hard or you're immoral or lazy or anything. It's neurologically your brain just doesn't do it anymore because it starts to shut down to protect itself. In fact, you, even you start self-medicating. There's a type of opioid you create in your brain when you're experiencing rejection from anybody who's important to you, including your child. So then your heart's gone. You just do your job. And so we call that block care. We don't want it to be a psychopathology. It just, it's a block. It's a blockage now between me and my ability to care for my child. This is separate from my attachment history. The fact that I've shut down and really don't care about my child doesn't mean I had a terrible childhood myself. It could, mm -hmm. I could be part mm -hmm. of it. Very I, I, I could have had a great childhood, but now I've been rejected for the last year and a half by my child, and it's hard, to, very hard neurologically to keep going. I'm at risk for now for block care. Yes, I think that is so important to understand mm -hmm. that um, mm. I worry about parents getting judged for this mm. or 
outside people not really understanding what it's like to yeah. be in a relationship like this and just seeing it at face value and not understanding all of yeah. that. So I just so, think it's I find it to be very helpful too, as you say, so professionals are not judgmental, uh, critical, and then blaming on the parents' own history or they're not trying hard enough or they don't care or whatever that stuff is. But also for the parents themselves, so they don't go into shame. Yeah. They want to love their kid. Some, many parents have, have cried when they say, I want to love them. I just can't do it anymore. I just mm -hmm. can't. I want to. I can't. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's that neurologically, they're in a self-protective mode and they just can't keep open the systems that are necessary to keep giving, giving, giving emotionally. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most effective ways you found to bring parents out of that? Well, I start with psychoeducation. Tell mm -hmm. people about it. If that reduces the shame, that'll give people a bit more hope. Right. Uh, and then a little more energy again. Uh, right. Also, education about the child, the, the block trust, that I'm less likely to take it as personally and see the fact that he hasn't been traumatized in five years doesn't mean that it's gone. It's still affecting him if, in fact, he's gone to a, a self-reliance that is now part of his survival mechanism in his brain. He doesn't trust people. So I teach people about block trust and block care. Well, that may not be enough, <clears throat> that cognitive approach. It, it may be enough to help some parents who are not really into it, but it's not enough. The best way to help the parent go into caregiving is to activate this, the systems. There are identical systems in the brain to attachment. So what happens when you're a child, you're using those systems to attach to your parents. Then when you become a parent, you're using the same systems to care for your child. So if I want to activate those caregiving systems, the best way to do it is through the attachment side of the coin. So they need a, a good uh, caregiver for themselves. Somebody has to take care of the parent so to, to wake up that system again. So it probably should start with a professional they trust, the therapist, counselor, social worker, somebody they really feel good about who can comfort and support them about how hard this is. And I would fairly quickly, if possible, involve somebody in their own life, a partner who's, who they have a good relationship with, best friend, sister, brother, somebody that they can really rely on because they need to go and cry and scream with somebody who mm. won't catch them. If they can do that, there is a person like that who's taking care of them, it'll be easier for them to wake up and neurologically and be able to care for their child again. Oh, I love that because um, a significant problem is <clears throat> how isolated these parents can become. Oh, goodness, right. And so we really need to think about yeah. that and try to help them mm -hmm. with that. A very nurturing, supportive parent group can be helpful. You know, mm -hmm. as long as the group is not everybody's in there and block care and then it gets sort of feeds on each other and everybody gets there angry and depressed. But a good parent group uh, may be facilitated by a professional, may not, maybe a parent mentor who really has been through it and now is out the other side who can facilitate it so that the parents can support each other can be a big part of the overall successful treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes, yes. Well, Dan, I'm, there are so many other things going through my mind. I feel like I could talk to you for a very long time, but um, you were generous um, 
to give me this amount of time. So um, I, I want to just hear um, where people can find out about training with you and the best place to buy your books. Um, where can they, what, where, where can you get everything you ever wanted to know about DDP? <laughs> well, uh, I have a website, danielhughes.org. Okay. Uh, our organization is ddpnetwork.com, I think, or .org. I think it's .com, ddpnetwork.com is the international website that we have. Uh, That's quite, quite nice. I saw it was redone a while back and... Yeah, yeah, I really like it a lot. Uh, psychologists in the, in the UK developed it and it, uh, it is really, uh, it's a lot of resources in there, but it has a list too of all the certified DDP therapists and consultants and trainers uh, in the United States. Now we have about six certified trainers. Uh, my trainings are listed. They may be on the website, but I may have forgot to put them on there too, because sometimes I forget. Uh, but they're on my website, uh, okay. the trainings that I do in Maine, uh, where I live in Portland, Maine. Um, if people are interested, uh, they're primarily for professionals, for therapists, social workers, Sometimes educators come, but every once in a while, uh, a parent who I think might benefit from it is invited to come as well. Great. Well, thank you so very much um, for your time and for the discussion. And I found your books and things very early and my work with these kids. And it's... The books should all be on Amazon if people are interested in that. All right. All right. Well, very good. Thank you so much. Okay, Karen. Good talking with you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at theknowledgecenter at chadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at chadoc.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.